How proud would you be if your daughter received an honorary PhD at age 17? And what if she had also written three books, seen half the world's bird species, and shared the stage with Greta Thunberg and Emma Watson? Our guest today has broken about every stereotype by her 21st birthday. Her name is Dr. Maya Rose Craig, and her story is far from straightforward. Growing up in the UK, she faced her fair share of struggles, finding her identity with mixed race roots and suffering almost daily attacks by racist trolls. Felt like the big turning point, youth strikes for climate sort of bursting onto the scene and Greta Thunberg and suddenly it felt like it had gone from climate change being this really nerdy thing where everyone's like, why do you keep talking about this? To like, yeah, this is like the issue of a generation, you know? I'm Rashad Mehta, the founder of Climate Story a platform featuring the most important voices in climate science, sustainability, and conservation. I met Maya Rose an hour outside Bristol to talk about her struggles, successes, and recently published autobiography called Bird Girl. This long-form interview is split into five chapters for easy listening. In chapter one, Maya Rose shares details of her new book, a glimpse into her writing process, and growing up with a bipolar parent. In chapter 2, we learn about her mixed-race background, the challenges facing her family's home country, and the importance of self-definition. Chapter 3 is about her panel with Emma Watson, her relationship with Greta Thunberg, and the constant racist attacks she faced while growing up. In chapter 4, Maya Rose shares a startling perspective on biodiversity in the UK and the frustrations she felt while sharing her message of ecological conservation. And finally, Chapter 5 is a deep dive into the relationship between climate change and biodiversity loss, and Myro shares her most spiritual moment in nature. Chapter 1. Becoming Bird Girl But yeah, thanks so much for doing this. No, that's right. Thanks for asking me. I was very, like, I was actually very nervous to interview you because you've been you've been on like every podcast already so like <laughs> what's the point you know no not at all you know what like every time i do something someone asks me something there's going to be a point during this where i go silent for like 30 seconds and i go i don't know um and that's yeah. kind of the fun of it like yeah but what i kind of mean is like you're a prolific writer you're you obviously have three books now which i didn't even know about like your mom told me this morning she was like you know there's, there's two other books and i was like i didn't even know <laughs> i would have read them um but i did love your book Thank you. I, you know, I was curious, just like as from one like um, nano creative to like a mega creative, like what's your writing process? Like, how do you actually like, do you have a, do you have a routine? Do you have a system? How do you, how do you get a pen to paper? Oh God, I'm actually, I'm a mess, which is why I was terrified when I signed the deal to write Bird Girl. Cause I was like, I've signed the contract. I have to do this now. Yeah, they get and you like that. I'm, I am kind of notoriously terrible I find it really hard to sit down and be systematic um even even in terms of bird girl I absolutely did not write it in the order that it is in the book um I kind of started in the middle and worked my way outwards in both directions because that seemed the easiest thing to do and I think in the end I no I, I never got to a point where I was like every day I was waking up and I was like yeah I've got a system and I'm doing this it was more like I had good days where I'd get a bunch done and I'd have days where I was like actually I'm, I can't do this today yeah. um which I think is probably partially because of how personal the book is I think yeah. at points it got really difficult to write and there was a lot of stuff to do with my mum being very unwell when I was a kid that I kind right. of hadn't actually thought about since I was like eight nine ten years old and right. sort of after unearthing all of that it was like okay I'm gonna give myself a break for a few days now yeah um but yeah I have no idea if I decided to write another big book even though I've done one like I'd go yeah. into it being like I have no idea how to do this 
Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, for people who don't have context, a big part of the story in Bird Girl is, is actually about your family. Yeah. And how you guys would get together and go birding. Is that the right word? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I, I think one of the weirdest parts about writing Bird Girl is because originally, actually, it wasn't a particularly personal book in that way. I love birds. I love nature. Yeah. Um, I wanted to write a book about all the amazing birds I've seen over the years. Yeah. And it was only as I sort of started to sketch this out that I realized that this was a story that made no sense without context. And that right. context was yeah. the fact that my mum was very mentally ill. She had very severe bipolar disorder. And my parents and I were turning to these big nature adventures to sort of cope with that and heal from that. Um, and sort of, I I went to my mum being like, I'm thinking about putting this stuff in. Are you comfortable with that? And I was terrified. And she was like, yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, and like, you've met my mum, so you, yeah. you can imagine exactly what it was like as well. No, your mom's amazing. Um, she yeah. was just like, I, I think you actually, I think this is a really important story to tell really honestly and really raw. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there are definitely probably moments in the book where any of us at any one point probably look terrible because that's the for nature sure. of like family. Yeah. Um, but for me, the most important thing was telling that story honestly. And it all came from birds. It always yeah. it always comes back to birds for me, hence Bird Girl. So, so what actually inspired you to write the book? Because it's pretty autobiographical, mm -hmm. right? And you are 21. I am, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit early to write it. Autobiography. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you deserve yeah. it. I mean, you've done like amazing stuff. No, no. Whenever I talk about the book, I try so hard to not use the word like memoir because it makes right. me feel so silly because right. I was 18 and 19 when I wrote it. And that wasn't it. It wasn't like I felt like I had some grand story of my life to tell. It was more like I felt like I had a story. Yeah. And that was what I've always loved writing. And that was what I wanted to write about. Like, it's not going to be in 20 years time I go yeah time for bird girl part two yeah um it's more like for me the idea of telling the story of a girl turning to nature and sort of there's actually there's a lot of stuff in the book about sort of growing up in the very sort of yeah. awkward teenage period and all that sort of thing yeah and it just it I, I think that story to adulthood just felt like one that I wanted to tell yeah so when did you actually start writing the book? Was it during lockdown or was it, it even it before? It was. It's very much a lockdown book, a, I you think. You had the yeah. time, yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to do otherwise, right? Like there's so much going on. Just exactly, sit down and... yeah. And I, I think also, I think the reason I say it's a lockdown book is because obviously for a very long period, we were all kind of stuck in our houses and, you know, couldn't even go on walks, let alone to anywhere further beyond that. Um, my family that was definitely going slightly crazy. Like my dad literally put a telescope in our back garden and was trying to look at right. ducks on a lake that were about three <laughs> miles away. Like it got yeah. kind of that to that point. Yeah. Um, and for me, my way to cope with COVID was to write about all of these amazing journeys and essentially travel around the world while staying yeah. in my room um, at my desk. And what was it yeah. like for you at home during COVID? Like, was that very different? I know you're you're all over the place. Mm. um did that feel good did that did, or did that feel like really frustrating um a bit of both weirdly like it was very it was definitely probably very grounding in that um you know we I guess for context we were literally going on these enormous bird watching trips I think the longest one was about six months wow but you know we were going away during all my summer holidays which is about six weeks every year solid block leaving the country not thinking about any of our problems laying at home like my older sister always described it as 
at kind of running away and it was yeah. um in that like it felt really escape. good and yeah. we loved it but it was sure. escapism and i yeah. think having to spend a period of time just at home in the uk together was probably really good for us and very healthy although yeah. it didn't feel it sometimes i'm sure everyone went a bit nuts yeah. at some point during lockdown for sure um but i think also it was actually a really big period for me in terms of my activism my campaigning um because i was suddenly I had the time to just do so much stuff um, and lots of stuff I did. I have to say, like, you live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. I do. Like, Chew Valley is just phenomenal. Yeah. Did you actually appreciate it growing up or did you just think, like, this is what everywhere probably looks like? I think I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have in yeah. the way that you don't when you're a kid. For sure. Um and I think as I got a bit older, I probably dreamed of like, you know, getting to the city and there being things to do and things like that. But I always, I think maybe because I have always had that love of nature, I have these moments of just like pure love maybe. And it's like all these amazing childhood memories of just running around in fields or the woods or tracking down animals or looking for birds and all that sort of thing. Like yeah. it's, it was actually one of my favorite bits in the book to write was just all the very sort of beautiful childhood memories of living somewhere as amazing as that. And I think also, you know, I had family in Bristol in the nearby city and like I, you know, I wasn't oblivious to how other people were living. And I think because of that, I it did sort of foster this appreciation in me. Like I've always known that I couldn't be a city girl. Like I remember whenever I used to go and stay with my nanu, my um my mum's mum in the city I could never sleep because of all the cars yeah. yeah and like she didn't even live in a crazy part but it was just the noise I couldn't yeah. deal with it um but I, I yeah I think actually one of the reasons I ended up because I, I do a lot of work taking kids out into the countryside connecting to them to nature and I think that especially when I was younger because I set that my charity up back to nature when I was 13 and I think that was partially from having had all those beautiful childhood memories and almost sort of a sense of mourning for these other kids that they didn't have that and possibly never would and I wanted to do something to change that a few, a few years ago like I think pretty much during lockdown uh, my wife and I just got our new dog mm. and we took and we took our dog to to like Chumanga and oh, like wow. that whole area and and obviously we went to Cheddar Gorge because that's like you know one of the one of the tourist attractions there and and Jibs, our dog, had his first piece of cheese and we literally had to hold our breath the whole way home. So that should tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, never gave him cheese again. <laughs> but he did love it. I'm sure he did. Yeah. The, actually, the lake nearby, Chew Valley Lake, is right, genuinely yeah. one of those spots that I can say to bird watchers on the other side of the country and they'll probably know where it is. Like, yeah. that's actually the reason my parents moved to where we live is because it's really good for birds. Where did they live before that? Uh, in Bristol. Oh, nice. Yeah. Bristol's mm. also a really cool oh, place. Oh, it's a very cool city. It's very green, Bristol. actually. Yeah. It's got a very good sort of environmental scene, which I didn't really clock it's until I moved away. It's one of the greenest cities in the it UK, is. isn't well, it? Well, it was, it was named Bristol Green Capital in 2015. And um, you were one of the ambassadors of that, I was, right? yeah. How, yeah. How did you know that? Um, I researched my subjects. <laughs> clearly, that's some very niche knowledge. Um, yeah, I was. It was, it was really good fun, yeah. I think, alongside sean the sheep and people like that <laughs> yeah. um but no it was it was a really lovely year which i think kind of is symbolic of sort of the wider attitude in bristol where everyone just kind of came together and like yeah we're the green city 
we're going to embrace that. We're going to have all these lovely little community projects. Yeah. Like it, it was, it, it's a lovely city to live it is, in. It is a very young city, especially compared to London. Mm. I mean, there's always people like buzzing around on their scooters and yes. like bikes. And um, it does feel a little bit more, uh, what's the word, almost more dense. Like maybe in the city center, like there's a lot of mm. people, there's a lot of yeah. like things happening. London's quite like, you know, it's a bit like slower as, really well where we live in Ealing for sure yeah because it's like zone two so it's not exactly like ah, okay, Oxford yeah. Circus <laughs> I mean if you remove the tourists from London there'd be like no one there it would be pretty that's quiet that's true yeah. yeah I've just I don't often hear people describing London as sort of slow or quiet but it you're feels right like that. actually well coming yeah. from Mumbai it definitely feels like that yeah I'm Rishad Mehta and this is Climate Story take a moment to subscribe and stay in touch chapter two the struggle of identity But you have an equally strong side, which is your mom's side, which is Bangladeshi. Mm. And wh- what's your connection to that side? Do you Because you didn't grow up there. You grew up here, right? I didn't. I'm actually, I'm third generation. My mom didn't grow up in Bangladesh either. My grandparents did. And they both moved to the UK when they were very young. And I think um, having a mixed identity is always a really weird thing. Um, like you're always trying to define yourself and I think other people are always doing that for you as well. And that I've always like made an effort to maintain that connection to my Bangladeshi culture, I guess. It's always been something that's been really important to me. But it's also been really difficult because I think through the generations things slip away and traditions slip away. Um but yeah, I, I try really hard and I, I always love going to Bangladesh. Actually, it's it's really special. And I love my family that I have there. Actually, I loved going there when I was a kid. It was always fun and exciting. You're definitely right that like Mumbai, Dhaka yeah. is very, very fast paced yeah, compared imagine, to, yeah. um, apart from if you're driving, actually, then it's very slow. But, um, you know, it, it is it is crazy in comparison. But it also, I, I write about this in the book, actually, sort of this battle of trying to figure out and define your own identity and kind of the contrast of that in the UK where I think like sort of figuring that out is so important and being able to tell people what you are is so important (laughs) versus kind of going back to Bangladesh and people not caring about any of that and they're just like your family and your home and we're going to make you a crazy ginormous meal and make you meet everyone and you know it's it's a really nice contrast. There is something about that part of the world that just like fills your soul. Mm. And when I lived there, I didn't feel it. Like I wanted to leave. But now that now when we go back maybe once a year, mm. I always feel replenished and re-energized mm. when I come back, which makes no sense because you're just like, no, as you I said, think it does, running yeah. from like pillar to post um, to different relatives' houses, going for meals. You should almost come back tired, but you don't. Yeah, it's, I think both. Like, it, I think it's the warmth of it, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's funny, actually, because it, or not, actually, it's not funny at all, but it's like, it was sort of that connection to Bangladesh and having family that there that I think actually engaged me in environmental campaigning at, at such a young age in that, um, obviously, Bangladesh is one of the worst affected countries in the world when it comes to climate change right. and... Even as a kid, I remember the things coming out of there were always like, oh, there's been another flooding, there's been another cyclone. And so I think it meant from a young age, climate change, unlike for a lot of my peers, didn't feel like this very distant concept. It didn't feel like something that was happening in like 30, 40 years time. It felt like something that was happening now to people that I knew, to my family. Um, 
which I think sort of yeah is 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 why I started doing stuff so passionately because it was just like we need to do stuff now like people don't seem to understand this I, I feel like that side of I'm, I'm gonna say India just because it's all like one subcontinent, yeah, subcontinent. is is always like going through like hurricanes and floods mm. and it's just a hard side to live on mm. it's very flat it's the flatlands I suppose um yeah just fantastic for rice crop but not for yeah. protection against cyclones and it's it's weird because I think in some ways you can say that um, Bangladesh has always experienced these extreme weather events, but not with the frequency um, that they are now. And it's getting to the point that sort of every year, you know, people from the village are saying we need more money to rebuild our house, to re-roof our house. Like it's all been washed away um, and it is just getting worse and worse. Another difficult side of Bangladesh is obviously like the fashion industry, mm. um, which in itself is a good thing because it's mm. bringing some level of like money into the country and em employment to people. But there's also like a huge like climate side to that. Mm. How do you how do you compensate between the two? Like, is there is there like a balance that that you think they can they can find? Yeah, and I think the fashion industry in Bangladesh is actually a really good example of why intersectional climate campaigning is so important. Because um, I guess in terms of this example, it's not as simple as in the West just going, we need to stop buying fast fashion. This is terrible for the environment. You know, there are people working in terrible conditions in factories. Like, this is just bad. We need to stop. Because without acknowledging the chain that all goes through, that's just cutting off a very big, very important industry that keeps a country's economy running. There's a massive employer sure. of women, actually, is very, very important yeah. in terms of um, women getting money and jobs. And so instead, what you do is instead of just cutting that off, you go to Bangladesh and you think, how can we repurpose these jobs? How can we repurpose these factories? Maybe we can turn them into places where they make solar panels. Maybe we can turn them into places where they recycle garments and turn them into whatever. Like, there's loads of different options. But that, like, in, in order to have truly sustainable solutions to climate and environmental based issues we can't just cut things off like that we have right. to think about how to transform um our cultures and our economies to to make it so that we can move forward with whatever that's transformed into i'm sure the bangladeshi government would love to hear your <laughs> thoughts on this um yeah it's weird i mean in the east and specifically in the poorer parts of the east I mean, money is so hard to come by that they think these are all like climate change is a luxury for them. Mm. You know, they don't realize that within a generation or two, the cost of climate change will likely offset any profits that they've made in these years. Mm. But I guess, again, like when you're when you're and Bangladesh is a poor country, mm. it is a it is a country is, that yeah. has always struggled and stereotypically as well. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I think that's a great idea. Like bringing different industries into the country and making them leaders in renewables or sustainable stuff. Yeah. I think that is a and good I, one. I think another example of that is like what you mentioned before, this idea of ecotourism where it's not just going like, um, I don't know, flying is bad, so we should never fly anywhere yeah. again. But instead thinking about how we can transform that industry into something that is protecting our nature and our birds and our animals and actually also people as well yeah. um but yeah yeah so so that side of you 
I guess, is what brings out your empathy towards, um, you call them, uh, or, or us rather, you call us visual ethnic minorities. Is that your term for it? Uh, within the UK, within yeah. The UK. Which, yeah. But basically it's because, like in America, they use the term people of color, yeah? Right. But people don't like that in the UK. I think sure. the word colored has different connotations. Right. And so for a long time, the term that people used was BAME, BAME, right. a black and Asian minority ethnic. But that was yeah. like a government census term. Yeah, that sounds awful. And it felt very yeah. clinical. Yeah. It had no ring to it. People didn't like it. But also in terms of the work that I was doing specifically with my charity, Black to Nature, the people that we were working with felt like they couldn't go into green spaces because they were visibly different, because they felt like they were going to be targeted um, they were going to be, you know, I don't know, sneered at or even like for some people there was a fear of hate crime. And the big thing was that they felt visibly different to the people who traditionally entered those spaces. And so it was just for the work specifically that Black to Nature did, we started talking about visibly minority ethnic children because that was our target audience. Those yeah. were the communities we wanted to work with. And that was always just supposed to be something for us. And the really nice thing is that for some people that has sort of... um I, I suppose that's worked for them and lots of people have picked it up, um, which is lovely because I think I, I think self-definition and I think terms are maybe more, impo more important than people give them credit for because that's for what sure. gives us the language to talk about these issues, but also yep. the language to sort of define ourselves and define who we are. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the UK is such a, melting pot of so many different really people is. from so many different places and really continents yeah. that um i suppose figuring out how to define that gets more and more complicated with every year and and i have to give like the uk credit there mm. i mean okay they're not perfect mm. but at least like at a governmental level um they do acknowledge that yes they've you know they've colonized most of the mm. world and now they need to at least figure out how to um, you can never truly balance it, but at least like be as courteous as possible. Yeah, and I think this is when we get into the really interesting conversation within the climate about loss and damages. Right, um, climate justice. Yeah, right. yeah. which I, I think people have stopped using the word reparations now because right. it was getting a funny reaction out of people, but it is essentially the idea of reparations that a lot of these countries are experiencing the terrible impacts of climate change due to the history of colonization because resources have been taken from them that otherwise they would be able to direct towards dealing with climate right. um, because wealth has been taken them, you know, all of these different things. And so it's like actually turning to these very wealthy Western countries that have become very wealthy due to the process of colonization, taking from these countries and, you know, places like Asia and Africa and saying, actually, we want some of our wealth back to deal with the problems that you've created. That's sure. personally how I would frame loss and damages. And and like the COP conferences mm. do actually stipulate that the the richer countries need to sort of pay the poorer countries mm. for that, right? Like a hundred billion a year or something. Yes, at the last COP, they um, did make a big decision in terms of loss and damages, which was a massive win because it's been debated for ages. Um, it's it's not quite as 
cemented in as yeah, perhaps I don't we'd think like. Ever paid. <laughs> N- no, and that's the problem with these yeah. UN conferences is yeah. it's a big step when they even say they're going to do something, yeah. but still, then making these countries do it is even harder. Yeah. Um, so I, it's still a continuous big campaign from lots of big organizations like Oxfam, actually. Um, so yeah, it's it's being worked on, but I think that is, I I think actually the climate community as a whole has sort of massively shifted towards the, these ideas of loss and damages and intersectionality and climate justice and all of these sorts of things in yeah. terms of where the focus is. Climate Story features planetary pioneers, the most interesting people in climate science, conservation and sustainability. Take a moment to follow us and stay in touch. Chapter 3, The Climate Justice Warriors. On, on the topic of COP26, which mm. was the last, was that the last one or? The one before last, yeah. The one before last. Mm. You did a really interesting panel with Emma Watson. I did, yeah. Which was amazing. Um, how was that? How was she? Oh, she's lovely yeah. um, and weirdly normal. No, it was it was <laughs> amazing, actually. And it happened in such a weird way because she slid into my dms on instagram and no she was way. just like can we do something and i was like yes yeah um and that's every teenager's dream i, I know it was crazy <laughs> Wait, it was like, um so i met her and she was lovely and she also obviously cares very deeply about these issues and she brought together what i think i think the group chat's called the climate justice league that's like amazing. it was this group of women who she felt were doing really important work within the climate justice movement and um sorry within the climate change movement and we were all talking about climate justice um and it was really nice actually because there were some of us within the group who I definitely think just would not have gotten that platform otherwise like and then you know in contrast you had people like Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakate who are you know, very, very well known and sort of trying to use that prestige to lift other activists sure. up. Yeah. Um, in particular, um, one of the women, she was called Vivi. Um, and she's fantastic. But Vivi is from Colombia. And the crazy thing is she is so smart, actually. She has so much to say, but her first language is also Spanish. Wow. And even though it was a UN conference, they didn't pay for the translators oh and she had to fundraise and get donations from all over the world to even be heard at the, that UN conference. So and I sad. think that's very yeah. um, symbolic of the wider issue, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the really lovely thing actually is about a month ago, we had a reunion uh, oh, of no that way. panel at the South Amazing. Bank Center. Yeah. Um, Sans Emma Watson, because she is a very busy woman, but the rest of us yeah. got together and had just this fantastic conversation about what the future of climate should actually look like. And yeah. it, it, anyway, I, they're amazing. And I'm very, very thankful for Emma to bringing us all together. Yeah. Because um, it's just, yeah. Did you guys do another panel together? We did a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, wow. So you guys had a reunion and you got on stage again. And was Emma again leading the conversation? Unfortunately, she could not. She was going to zoom in and then I think possibly a UN related, um, but something right. that was like yeah. major enough that it was very much bigger. Yeah. Um, but the rest of us, um, including Greta, got together um, and had this really lovely conversation. And 
Yeah, I think it was it was one of my favorite moments at COP the first time round. Actually, was yeah. just meeting all of these people because I think for me, superheroes for sure. Yeah, exactly. Like genuinely though, because. I feel like sometimes doing environmental stuff is so miserable. Right. Because <laughs> it feels like there's like 10 losses for every win. For sure. But for me, like meeting other campaigners and activists is kind of what makes, yeah. keeps me going a bit. And yeah, it's, it's like, amazing. you know, it's not just me or any anyone yeah. out there by themselves. There's like thousands of us. But tens for a long of thousands. time, you did feel pretty isolated, right? I think so, yeah. And it doesn't help that these nasty trolls are constantly trying to pull you down. Yeah, especially, it's weird, actually. As I've gotten older, they've sort of, dis like, they're not as frequent. But when I was younger... They're scared of you. It was probably... Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it was when I was probably 14 that it kind of peaked, which is a terrible sentence to even say. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, um, the, the big turning point, because you're right, for a long time it did kind of... I, it was just me, I was in secondary school... No one else at my school really cared about these kind of things. Yeah. Um, everyone else online was a lot old. Like it felt not true, but it felt like everyone was older than me. Um, and then like it felt like the big turning point was when I was about 16, Youth Strikes for Climate sort of bursting onto the scene and Greta Thunberg. And suddenly it felt like it had gone from climate change being this really nerdy thing where everyone's like, why do you keep talking about this? To like, yeah, this is like the issue of a generation, you know? Um, and I think sort of having that solidarity with other people my age was, it felt amazing and it was it was really important. What's your relationship with uh, Greta like? Um, I've met her quite a few times now and she is in so so many ways so normal. Yeah. Um, like, which I think makes it scarier or more impressive in a way because she is not some kind of like figure she is just like a a teenage girl um and she's always really lovely always down to have a laugh actually um and I think just I enjoy chatting to her and just basically try as hard as I can to not be weird about it um is basically what it comes down to yeah, yeah. are are any of the other um what do you guys call yourselves again? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the Climate Justice Warriors. The but climate that's, justice that's just our group Very chat apt, name. Yeah. Is anyone else interested in birding at all? Or is that is that your sort of focus? You know what? Increasingly, yes. Yeah. Which, is which has actually been a common theme in general is the older I get, the less weird it is to be into <laughs> nature. So like when I was like 15, very weird. Yeah. Now that I'm like 21, so many people either you know, are casually trying to go to the bird watching club at uni or really enjoy going for walks and looking for animals or... Um, it's become cool. Exa yeah. Exactly. I think as you become an adult, you start to realise how important it is to spend time outside versus when you're younger, it's like, why would I want to do that? Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people my age, I know actually kind of use nature and green spaces as a way to sort of deal with the stresses of life, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. And I think like, just being in lockdown really made nature yes. even more valuable because at least you could go outside and like go to Absolutely. the park. And, and I, I think actually that really difficult period during lockdown when you couldn't do that, when they closed all the parks right. and locked them all up. And a lot of people who had never thought of themselves as nature people had never even considered going for a walk in the countryside <laughs> were suddenly like, oh my God, I want to be able to just sit somewhere in the sun. Yeah, And the solution was, to go out into the countryside and go for a walk. Yeah. 
And the and the, as someone who lived in the countryside, there was a massive obvious uptick in people, including ethnic minority people, venturing out of the city into the country. And it was lovely. And the really nice thing is that that has continued post-COVID, where people are continuing to... It kind of feels like it was this very distant alien space where people didn't even consider going, but now that they have, they like it and they're carrying on with it, which is lovely. I'm Rishad Mehtan. This is Climate Story. Today with Dr. Maya Rose Craig. Chapter 4, Falling on Deaf Ears. I mean, I'm guilty of this as well. I don't think we would have ever holidayed in the UK as much Mm. as we did. Absolutely. Because we just couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, but totally. <laughs> Which and is why we ended up in, uh, like, Chumanga. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, otherwise it's a bit of a stretch to, like, you know. I mean, obviously, if if you're a bird lover or if you want to explore, like, nature and stuff. But for Londoners, it's... Yeah, and I think the combination of, like, we kind of have this narrative that, you know, the nature in the com- countryside in the UK is a bit boring and all that kind of stuff combined yeah. with... People are just busy and they have they their are, lives yeah. and they, you know. It takes time to like Exactly. Really like, and yeah. so for a lot of people, like a lovely package weekend in the sun sounds much nicer than kind for of sure. hiking through the English countryside. But I think once you, once people try it, exactly. many of yeah. them realize that they actually really enjoy it. I agree. Do, do you do any um, like tours or anything for adults? I think I'd actually be really rubbish at it. I, in that like. For me, I think I find bird watching almost kind of a very quiet, private, meditative sort right. of thing where quite often I'll go either by myself or just with one of my parents. Right. Um, and quite often we are in silence the whole time. Wow. And it's just something really nice about absorbing being outside is the only way I can describe it. Um, but you're not a meditator. You, you oh, said no, that. I'm rubbish at it. I think that's why I go out into nature because it's very peaceful. Maybe you good at it. Maybe you just need a little bit of, maybe you need a little I'm bit not, of training. I'm not very good at staying still, which I think Fair is like enough. why for me kind of walking through the woods or something just feels really good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like I'm not really thinking many thoughts because yeah. I'm just looking for birds and it's, it's it feels very healing. Um, I think my area of expertise in terms of pause is definitely like little kids like yeah. today. Um, but I mean, just speaking for myself, like if if you ever did like a group of adults like going birding or just like even just exploring the countryside, mm-hmm. like sign me up. I will put you on the top of the waiting list. Thank <laughs> you. Because, <laughs> yeah, because we've really like we've come to appreciate it. And mm-hmm. especially coming from from Mumbai, which is just like chaos 24-7, mm. um, not a tree in sight. It's just an amazing uh, green country. Yeah. And I loved how you, in the book, you contrasted that to Australia. And you said, like, the UK feels almost overbuilt and there's, like, people everywhere. Mm. But when you were driving through Australia, it felt almost like there were there were no humans. Like, Yeah. It's, it's weird, actually, because there are so many places I've been that have just made me feel like, the UK is stripped very bare and in, and in right. some ways it is in that like the state of our biodiversity in the UK is terrible we're one of the worst countries in the world in terms of biodiversity that's shocking yeah, yeah and I think it's because we've been destroying our countryside for such a long time that we kind of do go like oh yeah the empty rolling fields with like sheep in that's what countryside should look like right. it's very that's lush not, and it's like alive yeah no um it's you know it's the equivalent of like having the endless green lawn in suburbia right. um yeah. you know we need bog and forest and i don't yeah. know marsh and all that kind of thing 
in order to have biodiversity and those are all the things that we really don't like and it's fascinating going to other countries like Australia but like many other places in in Asia and South America where they just have untouched landscape and animals are just getting on with things as they have forever <laughs> and it's just so different from here it just makes me think of like I don't know the foxes rattling around in the <laughs> bins and the birds living under our eaves and all that kind of thing you know yep for sure I mean I, I do love the areas of outstanding natural beauty mm. the aonbs yeah that is an amazing oh they are they're gorgeous i mean there are green pockets but they're just not as wild as maybe we'd like yeah and i think um like i actually live right next to an aonb sorry an area of outstanding natural yeah. beauty it's not very catchy is it? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it is gorgeous but it's also just not very big, I suppose. And I'm I'm not saying we don't have beautiful, natural, wild places in the UK, because we do. But I think it's more, there's kind of a constant encroachment on all angles, especially, you know, with the housing crisis and things like that. It's sort of people are now looking at pieces of land and going like, why don't we have a house on there? <laughs> it's like, because there's loads of stuff that already lives there. And they're opening that up even more, right? Yeah. I think they're, they're stripping away the EU... Yeah, which is not good, um, considering how few, like I said, patches of nature we still have left. And actually considering, oh, sorry, that, that's getting completely unrelated to nature now. I was going to say, considering we have enough housing to house everyone, it's all to do with... We have enough housing that we can't afford. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, it's to do with... Anyway, yeah, other things. We don't even need to get into that, but... So, so, so in the book, you say that you were frustrated for many years because you felt like your message of conservation was just falling on deaf ears. And I think you even met like some prominent politicians, tried to convince them of, of your point of view, but never really felt like you mm. got anywhere. Yeah. Is that is that frustrating at times? Yeah, I think the nature of doing environmental campaigning is that it is just like endlessly frustrating and everything just works at a glacial pace as well. It's like change is always about 20 years behind where it should be. Um and I think for a long time, the environment was just so off to the side compared to what were seen as sort of political priorities to do with, right. you know, the economy or education or, I don't know, ta taxes, whatever. Um, and it, there were kind of wasn't this understanding that the environment links to everything else. It's like if we don't look after our soil, we won't be able to go crops anymore if we don't look after our forests you know like everything has economic governmental implications and because it wasn't immediate people didn't really seem to care and I think in the UK at least this is a big issue it's all this kind of short-termism where politicians or leaders are always thinking in terms of five-year bursts because that's how long they need to get re-elected yeah exactly yeah. Um, and so talking about something that was going to be an issue in 10, 15, 20 years time, it's like, yeah, we'll deal with that later. Yeah. Um, except it obviously never is. I do think that things have changed slightly in that during the period where I was doing a lot of that, I was talking about being very frustrated while campaigning. That was kind of before environmental issues were kind of dragged into the political spotlight. I right. think the difference is now that there's an at least a desire to be seen to be solving environmental issues because there is a very large swathe of people who want to see that from their politicians versus like 10 years ago. It was just like, 
because of that. I mean, and that's thanks to people like you, right? Because you've been sort of hammering the message home even when no one was listening. So great job. <laughs> Thank you. You've used your platform well. Um, so in in the book, and I love the book, by the way. I don't know if I said that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I didn't. I don't think I did say that. I think I said it to you off camera. But I, <laughs> and I said it to your mom a few times, but I really love the book. Thank Generally, you. it's, I shouldn't say this on camera, but it's quite a struggle to sometimes read um, yeah. books, especially like when you have to. Mm. You know, if you're reading for pleasure, that's fine. But when I know, okay, I have an interview next week. Yeah, yeah. But I read your book in like three days and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That that means a I lot. I think it, yeah. it offered like a new perspective on something that wasn't necessarily new, which is birding. It's something that I've never come across, especially it's not something like Indian people do, yeah. you know. Um, our extent of birding is probably like tandoori chicken. Yeah. Sorry, it's a very... <laughs> awful joke but yeah it's true um but you say that especially in birding circles it's generally like a white person thing and and which is why your charity is not trying to encourage young people mm. um minorities and otherwise to begin like exploring nature and making it a part of their lives which is amazing in this final chapter i asked Maya rose about her values the relationship between nature and climate, and her most spiritual moment. Chapter 5. Awakening. Sorry, there was no question there. No, that's right. I can just talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. In the, yeah, because like, I kind of mentioned my charity Black to Nature a little bit as yeah. well, but I guess just to talk about it explicitly, I set it up when I was like 13, 14 years old with the explicit goal of trying to get ethnic minority kids and teenagers out into nature and also I think emotionally connected to nature and there are a few different reasons behind that. Um, like I think from my own personal lived experience, it felt very important for sort of health and well-being reasons to be able to have that connection to nature because that was something that had been so important to me um, and also just nature is really fun and everyone should be able to do it but I think also it was this idea of like so many people I talked to were just like I don't have the time to be worried about environmental issues because I need to work and I get food on the table and I need to get my kids to school and this is something that like white middle class people that don't have anything else to worry about worry about you know for sure um and so it also felt like by trying to engage people with nature in the outdoors, they would maybe care about the issues that are thre threatening nature and our wildlife, you know? Um, and since then, it's transformed a lot. We do a lot more stuff to do with climate change in terms of helping these kids connect to and understand the climate crisis. Um, so in particular, kind of helping it all link together in their head. An example of that could be um chatting to a kid from Sudan and being and then being like I don't care about climate change and then being like oh but haven't there been really bad uh droughts in Sudan that have been affecting your family the last few years and they're like yeah that's really awful and you go that's climate change and they go oh you know like lots of conversations like that that are like kind of piecing it together for them um but we're, we're, and, I don't know and it's community outreach as well you sorry you can tell it's a really important project to me but no it is it's, it's do it trying in so many different directions to help these kids and to help nature. Um, and it's something I've been doing for like eight years now. That's a long time. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's a really special project to me. And so many of the kids actually that we've worked with over the years are really special to me as well. Yeah. 
yeah i mean i got to i got to sort of watch it this morning um and all the kids like they were so engaged they were so interested i almost felt like they were at like disneyland or yeah. you know an amusement park it is yeah because a lot of the i i'm not sure about today but like a lot of the kids that we work with especially the younger ones have literally never been to the countryside before like i remember the first ever primary school age camp we ran um they're all in a mini minibus they were raised up they could see over the hedges and before they'd even arrived or looked in their tents they ran out and they were so excited because they'd just seen cows for the first time over the hedge you know and they'd never <laughs> no seen them before and this is Maybe a fifteen-minute drive and outside these are kids the city. Growing up in the UK, yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is this is and like in the edge of Bristol, so literally fifteen twenty minutes away. And they'd never seen cows, sheep, horses, wow. anything like that, and they were so excited to be there. And so for a lot of these kids, it is just a completely new experience. And yeah. I think actually, the other really maybe not like the key thing we do, but one of my personal favorite things about kind of the work we do is we are just able to give a lot of these kids a lot of whom are from quite deprived backgrounds like the time and energy and resources that they otherwise just would not receive in school or from home whether that's um we've received funding for some of the longer term camps that aren't just day trips to give three square meals a day or some of the kids that maybe have ADHD or autism being able to like you know have one-on-one -on -one conversations and help them and you know it's not just like some nuisance at the back of the classroom and you know like these anyway I these we have the time to give them our attention I think that's what makes these camps feel really special to me as well as just like doing environmental campaigning is so important but it's also so broad and takes right. so long and it's so bureaucratic yeah. And I think sometimes being able to do something really hands on and being able, able to transform a kid over the course of a day or two days is like, personally, I find it really rejuvenating as well. Like, yeah. I, I love doing this stuff. And you're planting a seed, right? You never know. Like, yeah, exactly. The next generation, maybe the next, um, the next you will come from one of your camps. Yeah. And I think the really lovely thing is, you know, we have received feedback from these kids. And like I said, sometimes we're the first ones to tell them actually like you are smart you are capable you can do more and we've had examples of kids i don't know for, for example deciding that actually they want to go and study law at university rather than just like fine, drop yeah. out of college or you know for stuff sure. like that yeah. as well where it's just like actually you can do stuff and telling kids that they can change the world i think is so important because they can and quite often totally no one's can. ever told yeah. them that before for sure yeah i wanted to read a quick excerpt um so for people that have the book, it's page 222. Uh, as temperatures rise in the sea, fish stocks tend to move around and the once reliable destinations for food become depleted. Can you ex explain like the sort of cyclical link between climate change and natural habitat loss and how that's going to affect us in like the decades ahead? Yeah, I mean, I do personally think that biodiversity loss and climate change are two sides of the same coin. Right. And one of them does get a lot more attention than the other. For But anyway, it doesn't really matter right, why, but climate change gets a lot more attention, maybe because it feels like it's going to affect people much sooner. I don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, they are intrinsically linked in so many different ways. Um, 
for example, you know, I mentioned earlier that we need more bogs in the UK, which is not a particularly exciting sentence. Yeah, exactly. um, but it's but the way that we have destroyed our landscape in the UK and taken away our marshes and bogs is terrible in, in terms of the climate crisis because those are the areas that are essentially massive natural carbon captures. Right. You know, they swallow. I can't remember, probably more 10 times more than forests in terms of the amount of carbon in the air. They yeah. suck it all in. And because we are destroying those landscapes because they're not useful, necessarily useful for us as humans, it means that more carbon is going into the air. And that's just one tiny example. And we're seeing that over and over again. And then combined with that, um, the way that our landscapes once used to manage themselves um, is no longer tenable because of climate change. And we're, we're seeing that in like the terrible wildfires in Australia, for example. Um, we're seeing that in, um, again, a, a lot of the flooding that we see is because of us destroying forests either side of a valley. So it all like crashes down onto the village in the middle of the valley. And, you know, there's lots of stuff like that. And then, like you mentioned, food starts not being where we need it to be and it does affect animals first but it is starting to affect us as well um i mentioned that fish is no longer where seabirds are expecting it to be a more simple example is birds time the hatching of their eggs in the spring to be as the same as the hatching of the caterpillar so that there's loads and loads of food but the caterpillars hatch by heat and the birds eggs hatch by timing and so suddenly the caterpillars are coming out two weeks before the chicks and there's not enough food. And, you know, there's there's loads and loads of stuff like that going on where it's like everything is so finely tuned to run together. And as soon as one thing gets knocked slightly out of place, um, it just doesn't work anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's super worrying. Do you think there's, do you think there's like... Is is there is there a way out in your opinion, even if it's really hard? Like, is are there specific actions that we can take at a societal level, but also at a personal level, that can help um, rebuild natural habitats? Mm. Yeah, I want to say firstly as well. We always talk about climate change like it's a massive uh, cliff we're eventually going to fall off. Um, you know, it's always like by twenty thirty we're at the point of no return. By twenty fifty, point of no return. We've gone past about twenty points of no return already because it isn't some terrible cliff. It's just a slow descent, yeah. and at any point stopping and turning around prevents you know what lays further down. I suppose to carry on with the metaphor, right? And so it's like even if we can't necessarily reverse the damage that has been done. There is still so much to save. Um, but that being said, there are things that can and should be done, um, the most obvious of which being carbon capture, um, ideally in the form of replanted forests, recreated marshes, things like that, um, which is obviously restoring our nature and our wildlife, rewilding, if we want to use that word, um, that sort of thing. I think in terms of... I I have a quite a complicated relationship with this idea of individual action in terms of the climate movement, mm. just because I think we don't acknowledge enough that climate change is not a personal issue where every single person has failed the planet. It is a s systemic issue right. that has been created by governments and corporations. And so I think even though individual action is 
and sort of changing our everyday behaviors is incredibly important. The thing that is even more important is creating governmental change and corporate change. And that can be using your vote, writing to your MP, going to protests, showing that this is an issue um, that could make or break the current government is is incredibly important. Um, Because, for example, in the UK, they're currently greenlighting another ginormous oil field um, called Rosebank off the north of Scotland, even though we protested and got the last one cancelled. You know, it's, it's things like that. Um, and it's only because like sorry not to get like complicated about it but I think in terms of climate we're kind of trying to do two different things we're trying to prevent the current climate crisis and kind of stop the world from burning in the next 20 years but I think we're also trying to rebuild the system so that something like this can never happen again and I think that those are two different things and so in the short term we're trying to create the systemic change to sort of bring it all back. And then in the long term, that's when we start talking about individual actions and consumer culture, oh, sorry, not consumer culture, because we need to talk about that anyway, but like our individual behaviors and things like that um, in order to s- sort of build a society where things like climate change don't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- what did you say about... Con- no, I was, was going to say like... Th- talking about consumerism as an issue for the future and then I was like no that's obviously absolutely not true um because that is a massive issue of now yeah and that and that is also tied to uh, everything including sweatshops in Bangladesh and where our food's coming from and Mm. the fact that okay we're not as bad as the U.S. but we still over consume yeah we're not good either though yeah Um, yeah people often think about fast fashion and things like that and i think that is maybe a more short-term thing Mm. but in terms of the long term there are also things that we are eventually just going to have to change like for example getting used to not having foods or year round and getting right. used to having like seasonal food in the shops again and things like which that which is lovely by the way which yeah. is lovely and yeah. it tastes better but and it's not something we're used to like every, exactly i was in i was in spain a couple of days ago and it's tomato season and there's just yeah. tomatoes everywhere and they're amazing yeah they're beautiful like they're they're nothing they like are, and the they're probably delicious as well oh, they're amazing <laughs> they're just they're just stunning but I, I don't want to talk about tomatoes but yeah i totally <laughs> totally agree with you yeah um so yeah. so the question i wanted to ask was like if you could if you could construct um almost like a set of values and the set of values that maybe like politicians or um the people making the rules would look to each time they wanted to make a decision like what do you think those values would look like because um, values can transcend like terms of office yeah right but we don't have any anymore i think we lost them i think somewhere they, along i think the they've way. degraded a lot haven't they've become they? historical documents yeah. which is a shame because i do think uk the way that uk politics runs is so based on values that people just don't really adhere to anymore um i think probably the biggest one would be sort of countering this short-termism and sort of everything being thought about in the long term and how to this is very corny but leave something better than how it was found um and i also think actually 
the politicization, the polarization of environmental issues within government is one of the biggest issues t- today in that the way that it's kind of devolved into the left cares about the environment and the right doesn't like doing things for the environment do it? when like you know 40 years ago it would have been the left is we're going to find a liberal way to solve this and the right is we're going to find a conservative economically minded way to solve this and I think that as well um like countering that reminding you that you're just trying to find a way to solve an issue not ignore an issue um I think also everything doesn't have to be economically motivated in the I think there are a lot of things that don't necessarily shrink or make the economy or make less money but also don't necessarily make large profit kind of ignored or pushed to the side um that not being the case would be nice um easy one fossil fuel companies not being allowed to lobby our government anymore would be really nice um I don't know because I think the thing with climate change is it's so complicated but it's so simple at the same time and I think one of the things that used to make me angriest when I was younger was it's an issue that could have been solved before I was even born you know I was born in 2002 I'm 21 and it could have been solved in the 90s and instead like I've spent my teens campaigning about this and so it's just like I don't know basic rule they have to follow doing their best to try and help the country and help people rather than themselves I don't know so if you had to rewrite the constitution and add like three words or three values that you wanted future generations to look back on, mm. what, what do you think they would be? Three words? I don't know. Care for people. I don't know. Care for everything, maybe. Um, do we have a word for that? Because, okay, we could say humanity is but it's, but it's adhering to humanity, human values, yeah. but what's the word for, like, caring for other species or caring for yeah. uh, nature or Gaia or I don't know I think all the words we have for that Maybe are a little bit a cool derogative word. it's always like yeah. nature lover or eco-warrior yeah, and that doesn't great. quite no. yeah I don't know maybe I'll invent a new word equatorian or something like that yeah yeah I'm not good at words but I think <laughs> you might be better at it um um God, if I could figure out what like the Latin word for nature is, I could invent something real quick. I, yeah, <laughs> that would be a good one. Yeah. Um, but no, like I think, I guess the basic core of it is is kind of going back to this idea of seeing humans as separate from nature, and therefore thinking that the things that benefit nature don't benefit people, which right. is obviously not true. And which kind of understanding, yeah. yeah, exactly, and yeah. understanding that in the long term and even in the medium and short term to be honest but in the long term that's not the case have you ever felt like a metaphysical experience or some sort of like spiritual experience while being in nature i think quietly yes um in that you can enter certain natural spaces and it feels very holy um but i think I think the weirdest experience I've had in terms of that was actually doing a activism stunt, like a campaigning thing, um, 
because there's a picture of me that is, I think, very well known of me campaigning on the ice in the Arctic. Um, With the sign. Holding a, a yeah. Youth Strike for Climate sign. And um, I think what people don't know is that I was out on that. I was protesting. I was out on that ice for hours, probably five or six hours in the end. And I was also by myself um, for for a very, very long period of that. And so it was just me sat on this ice you can feel the sea kind of moving beneath you there was kind of you could hear the ice melting around you and um I just felt incredibly connected to that landscape in that moment and also incredibly angry because of that I think and it was it was this very special almost spiritual moment but it was also really really upsetting um do you subscribe to like the theory that there's an earth spirit or a, or a Gaia or something that governs and creates and I think for me um because I'm actually Muslim and um I think it's more the idea that everything is God I guess yeah. um but I think like in some ways the appeal of nature and the outdoors for me is kind of the the lack of spirituality almost like it's just me and the emptiness or not the emptiness but me and the trees and it feels really nice yeah it feels complete somehow yeah whereas these artificial environments feel a bit too like man-made yes it's not as good for your brain i think like it's not how we're supposed to exist at the end of the book you say if i had to choose one bird as my mascot it would be the harpy eagle Mm. why (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you had 5,300 <laughs> birds to choose from. Um, oh, I don't know. I've always had a thing for like the big scary birds that could <laughs> kind of kill you. And if you read the book, you'll notice because at the start of each chapter, I cho- I pick out a book, a bird from that chapter and a disproportionate amount of them are like the big scary Predators. ones. You've got like <laughs> the shoebill and the cassowary and the picathartes and the harpy eagle. And I think the harpy eagle in particular, I spent nine years trying to see this bird i decided i wanted to see it when i was eight i saw it when i was 17 it is you it's for context it is the, it's the biggest eagle in the world you get it in um the south american and sometimes central american jungle um and it has these massive talons because it literally hunts by grabbing monkeys off the top of trees and it has this kind of terrifying steely glare <laughs> and i just i think any animal that is intelligent enough to make eye contact with you and know that you're also looking at it, you feel sort of a connection when you make that eye contact. And the harpy eagle was definitely one of those birds because we were kind of staring each other down for a while. Um, but I don't know. I, th- I think it must have been just because it- it's probably my favorite bird I've ever seen, um, which is saying something because I've seen a lot of birds. Yeah. But like, Where did you see that? Um, in the Amazon, or not in the Amazon, in the jungle in Brazil, yeah. in the Sao Paulo. So when you guys are actually out birding, like, how do you actually know what you're looking at? Do you have like, I know you have your little Collins guide, right? In the UK, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, depends where we are. Sometimes we, if it's a country with like a crazy number of birds, it's easier to get a bird guide who just always knows exactly what they're looking at. Um versus in some place it it literally is just 
looking at the bird going, oh, I think that that is a species of crow and then going to right. the crow section and the bird guys and going, Got oh, it looks yeah. like this one. Like it literally is that. And yeah. I don't mind because it's kind of, it's part of the process, you know? And after you spend a few days in a country, you get used to it. You adjust to all the very common birds very quickly, which then means you can fairly immediately pick out something that's rare and exciting. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really nice. It's kind of very, I don't know, getting getting to know all the all the nature in a new country so you're about halfway through the world's birds now you're at 5300 that i've actually seen i'm actually closer to 5800 these oh days God. i've seen a lot of birds since then wow um that was four years ago yeah are you running out of places to find them no there are a lot of birds <laughs> are left. there are i think they actually just surpassed 11,000 species of birds um in the world so Who actually catalogs that there are organizations okay. and it gets i in the book i think some of the hardest bits to write was kind of the really nerdy stuff to right. do with bird categorization yeah, yeah. that you must have read um where basically there are scientists who keep on disagreeing about if birds i don't know if two birds are two species or one species right. and so the number of birds keeps changing but at the <laughs> moment it's about eleven thousand. um yeah what, what would you say is like the biggest unexplored area for you um asia asia um i've done very very little birding in mainland asia um and i'd love to one day um but it's just difficult because a very large area of that is russia and a very large area of that is china right um but i've never been to india bird watching and they have so much amazing wildlife there and i'd love to go yeah. but it's a big trip it's well, like where to we, even start with india you're invited at any time thank you very much <laughs> not that i'm there but <laughs> no i was gonna say you should be careful about giving me invites because i will take you up on it as no well. for sure. if you're if you're going I'll, I'll i'll meet you there amazing as long as we can go birding it's a deal yeah <laughs> um so can you explain how we can adopt the principle of respite and regeneration to create a more balanced world, both externally and internally within ourselves? Bit of a philosophical one. I, I guess it's kind of this thing that I've maybe been circling around but not really talked about, which is just this idea of being at peace. And for me, that is being outside. But I think we live oh, we sorry we live in a society um but we live in a world that is so fast paced and i think very often one that is structured around there being almost the sense of shame if you're not doing stuff and being productive and like that's not really how humans are meant to exist or meant to live we're meant to do the things we need to do and then survive and then spend a lot of time doing nothing and hanging out with each other and sleeping um sleeping is great yeah sleeping is fantastic i'm a s strong believer that we should be more like lions like spending 90 percent of our day just like lounging around <laughs> um because we don't need to do that much to survive you know and i i think and unfortunately sorry i mean in theory but obviously in practice a lot of people have to work incredibly hard to make ends meet and it's not how it should be and so i think yeah. it's I guess if you mean personally or in a, in the world, in the world, like obviously creating a world where we acknowledge that there are enough resources to go around and we share those and we help one another. I think we're very communal animals. 
Um, and so acknowledging that is really important. Um, and then I think if people do have the ability to rest or have respite, um, like embracing that um, and going and doing nothing. Like I'm such a big advocate for doing nothing. I think it's so good for us. It would to... be better for the world if we exactly. did nothing. <laughs> and I think it's so good for us to just kind of switch our brains off sometimes because yeah. Like I said, I th I'm, I kind of think that's how we're supposed to exist. So sure, maybe you maybe you are a meditator after all because <laughs> that's all we're really doing, right? True, we're just, yeah. We're just switching off. We're just mm -hmm. like sitting in a funny way, but <laughs> that's really all we're doing. Um, any any last words? Not that you're going anywhere, just the interview's ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm running away after yeah. this. Um, I think just that, like, in the face of feeling like everything's terrible all the time like a there still are so many good people trying to do so many good things like I think the posts that people are arguing under incessantly at the moment is me just saying like I don't think humanity is intrinsically evil um which I don't think we are I think there's so much goodness still in the world sure. but also that everyone is capable of doing their bit and their bit doesn't necessarily look like I don't know, having like 30 second long showers so you're not wasting water. It's it's more to do with politically showing your presence and showing that these are the issues you care about. Um, so I think that's probably the two things. Do a bit more of nothing, so hopefully outside. Yeah. And also like go and show your government that these are the issues you care about and you will notice if they don't follow through. Where can people find you online? Um, I'm super easy because my book is called Bird Girl and I am Bird Girl UK on everything. Um, and these days I'm probably the most active on Instagram and Twitter. So you can go and check me out. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was perfect. No, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Climate Story. Take a moment to follow us on Instagram and YouTube. The Climate Story podcast is produced in London and I'm Rishad Mehta. Reach out to me with your questions or comments and thank you again for listening.